Take your Bible and turn to the book of Jonah. We are in Jonah chapter 4. That's the last chapter, so new record for me on Sunday mornings. Land speed being broken, land speed records being set here as we finish a chapter or a whole book of the Bible in a matter of weeks. Some of you will find that less exciting than others, I suppose. Uh, I will tell you that I spent my week in uh, Atlanta this week. It was a uh, it was a weird a weird week to spend in Atlanta. Our meetings got hijacked by. Uh, the virus talk that has uh, seemed to cripple the financial world over the past week. Uh, John, wasn't a good week for you to be messing around, was it, brother? No, no, it wasn't, as he shakes his head down. It was not a good week. Uh, you can ask John about that later. But um, I spent some time in Atlanta as, as uh, the meetings we were supposed to have were hijacked. Nevertheless, there was one breakout session that they said we could not get out of, even though we were dealing with the, the, uh, the health of our company, we had to go to this. And you'll be uh, surprised, maybe, uh, by it. It was a three-hour seminar on how to give presentations. That's what it was. And so that was interesting. Uh, there were uh, probably, I don't know, 40, 50 people in there. And it was all about uh, how to get people's attention how to hold people's attention, and man, I found that I am doing a lot of things wrong up here on Sunday mornings. Uh, you know, for one, it, just spending way too much time, you know, uh, in, in uh, this book uh, I, to hold people's attention for any length of time, and I should have a PowerPoint presentation to go with this, and you know, I'm sorry, I'm not very good at that. Have any of you ever had a PowerPoint presentation? I learned about all kinds of stuff. I learned about the truth plane have any of you ever heard about the truth plane before? So apparently, there is a plane on your body, below your chest and above your waist, where if you keep your hands in that plane, you are more believable than if your hands go above that plane or below that plane. And they said if you watch TED Talks or professional presenters, you'll notice they always try to keep their hands right here in the middle because they've all read the same book and had the same instruction about how to keep their hands right here in the middle. And they said, you know, if you go back and you watch some of Steve's jo Steve Jobs' old Apple presentations, that whenever he's talking about Apple products, his hands are right here in the truth plane. And whenever he says something like, now there are other products on the market he drops his hands down here like this. And they call this the gross plane down here. So, man, I learned all kinds of stuff. Now, I did raise my hand and ask the question. I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm a, a preacher at a church, so if you're behind a pulpit and you keep your, your hands right about here on the pulpit, is that in the truth plane somewhere? And they said that it wasn't, that that didn't count. So we need to do away with this whole thing all together, and, uh, and I just need to walk around like this, you know, and whenever I talk about the devil, I'll just bring my hands down here, and, and so I learned, I learned all kinds, actually, because I've made you laugh, this is probably a good presentation, I'm off on the right foot, and I'm going to do you another favor, and that it's going to be short because of the Lord's Supper, so maybe I'd get a passing grade on this one, but of course, that stuff is never, never in my wheelhouse. I don't spend an ounce of time thinking about, at the 10-minute mark, how am I going to get your attention? If you have showed up here with the, uh, without the, the dedicated intention of paying attention, then that is not my fault. And I do not consider it my job to entertain or captivate you for the 30 or 40 minutes. Some of you say 30. It's never 30. But for the 40 minutes that, that I have your attention. So we are in the book of Jonah. This is the word of God. 
And something amazing has just happened in Jonah chapter 3. Something amazing has just happened in Jonah chapter 3. One of the commentaries that I read this week uh, began the introduction of Jonah chapter 4 by pointing out that what we see happen at the end of Jonah chapter 3 is the kind of thing that men and women live their entire lives begging to see. Um, Some people spend, literally spend themselves trying to see it. In three days, which is what we're told at the beginning of chapter 3, is the time it takes to walk from one end of Nineveh to the other. In three days, preaching a simple message, an entire city of people have repented. We can read, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3, So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Um, that is the end of chapter 3. Chapter 4 begins with this unbelievable verse, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Well, let's pause there for a second and consider Jonah just with a couple of comments. When it says it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he became angry, let's not make any mistake about it. It is the repentance of Nineveh and the salvation that they're crying for that displeases Jonah. And we don't have any grand statement from God that he is going to relent here. We have from verse 3 the summary of what unfolded. But Jonah merely hears the people crying out in repentance and he knows That God is not going to destroy them. We get that because of what he says. He says, and and he goes to God in prayer. In his anger, we can give him credit for this. He goes to God in prayer. And he said, this is what I was worried about at the start when I was in my own country. And so we find the true motivation of Jonah's heart when he ran away from the presence of the Lord in the first place. And what was it? He knew that if he went there 
to Nineveh and proclaim this message, and the people repented, and he might not have known that they were going to repent, but he knew that if they did repent, that God would forgive them and not destroy them. And they were his enemies. They were Israel's enemies. They were more of an enemy to Israel than any nation has ever been to us. They were their mortal enemies. It was pure patriotism and self-righteousness that rises up in Jonah and that he wants to see the enemies of God's people utterly annihilated. And he said, this is what I was afraid would happen at the beginning. This is why I didn't do this. Notice the things that he knows about his God. He says, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God. How would he know that? You have to experience it. You have to experience that to know that about God. Jonah had experienced that. Slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. How do you know that about God? You've done things that would make him angry before. You've seen other people do things that would make him angry before. And yet fire did not fall from heaven and destroy you. Lightning did not strike on your head. Abundant in loving kindness. Despite your actions that should have brought God's judgment, you received love, kindness from your God. Now, if you're not a Christian, perhaps you can't say that. But if you are a Christian, you know what that means. Because you are one of God's people. And you know what it is to anger Him. And you know what it is to receive, rather than the opposite of discipline, to receive blessing and kindness and mercy, almost as if you'd never sinned at all. In an instant after repentance, the reconciliation of a relationship. Jenna knew these things about God. One who relents from doing harm. The God who holds the power of everything precious to you in the world in His hands, who has justifiable reason to discipline you and to destroy the things that you love most, and relents from doing so. Not because you've merited it, simply because He does not wish to do it. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I, this is how I interpret Jonah here, I do not want to go back to Israel to be a prophet there, knowing that I have participated in the salvation of a people who are our mortal enemies. He did not see a return to Israel as a victorious return, as a foreign people have repented and aligned themselves, however so briefly in their history as a nation, to the one true God of Israel. He did not shame of victory in that. He saw shame. He is ashamed of himself. It is better for me to die than to go on living with what I've been a part of. Verse 4. The Lord asks a very simple question. Is it right for you to be angry? Such a simple question. Such a simple question. I don't think that I have ever infuriated Christians more than when they come to me upset about something and you simply ask, 
is it right for you to be upset about this? It is the most infuriating question to be asked. When you are upset about something, and you know you shouldn't be. Jonah doesn't answer. Verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter. Some of your translations may say a booth. Some kind of tent. And he sat under it in the shade till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. Evidently it wasn't a very good shelter. Piece of canvas out there in the desert. So God prepared a plant. Now this is where you get all kinds of commentaries trying to speculate what kind of plant it was. And again, this is where I will tell you it does not matter. But it grows up in one day, yes, just like a fish swallowed him, just like God created in seven days, just like Jesus was born of a virgin, just like he died on a cross and rose from the grave. God can do supernatural things. If you don't believe that, you don't believe in God. It's that simple. So I'm not going to take any time explaining what species the tree was, okay? A plant grew, and Jonah appreciated it. It says... So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. It provided real shade as opposed to his little structure. But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. What kind of worm was it? Again, God prepared a worm, and it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head. Now, I'm assuming Jonah was a bald guy because I am a bald guy and there is just nothing worse than the sun beating on a bald guy's head. There is nothing worse than that. I, I tell you what, when I began to lose my hair, it was frustrating and upsetting and then when I decided I was not going to fight that fight anymore and just cut it all really, really short, uh, I went outside to play basketball and got burned maybe four or five times before I realized... The way to do this is to take sunscreen and to just go over top of everything and eventually the sun will not feel so bad on your head. So I'm assuming Jonah is a bald guy here and God is using the sun to just beat him down. And there is, what do you do? I mean, there's nothing to be done except roast. And, you know, some of you have the right kind of complexion to sit out on the beach all day and enjoy it. That's my wife. And what do I do when I'm on the beach, honey? Yeah, an umbrella or and sunscreen and limited time is how much I spend out there. I do not have that complexion. Uh, my idea is sitting somewhere indoors looking at the beach is the right way to go about it or in the water. Uh, and Jonah is just roasting. And if you've ever, I, I, give, I tell you that because if you've ever been in a situation like this, it is miserable. And he is miserable. And it says, then he wished death for himself and said, it is better for me to die than to live. So it's not some moral stand he's making at this point. It's just, I'm, my life is ruined. I'm sick of this. I'm suffering. Just kill me. Now see, you'll see this language in the Old Testament. The Jewish people rightly believed it was wrong for them to kill themselves, but they had no problem asking God to do it. You'll see that from time to time, you know. Notice what God goes back to in verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Now, in verse 4, Jonah did not answer the Lord. 
when he said, is it right for you to be angry, parentheses, over the salvation of plant, that he feels some, no answer. But now, the Lord having attached Jonah to this plant that he feels some tie to, in his frustration, not thinking clearly, is it right for you to be angry about what happened to this plant? And he said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. Notice how the Lord doesn't argue with him. But the Lord said, You have had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, not to mention animals and much livestock. And of course we know the answer. It's, it's a rhetorical question. No answer is provided. I like to think that on the heel, because this is the end of the book of Jonah. I like to think that on the heels of this, uh, Jonah uh, comes to his senses and realizes what God is saying. Because I believe clearly from the story that Jonah is one of the saints. He is one of God's people. He's just stubborn and childish with misplaced morals and values. And God is teaching him. And I like to think that the book of Jonah was written by Jonah on the other side, perhaps years later, of a reflection of these events. But we're not told how Jonah responds or what happens next. We have the book. He told someone. I, I like to think he did it himself. Because I've been in a situation or two like that in my life where I behaved petty and wrong and thought wrong about who God was and what God was doing, and years later realized how stupid I was and was humble enough to talk about it, even if it made me look foolish and dumb. So I, I like to think that Jonah did it. Some commentators look at this and they say, well, clearly Jonah didn't write this. I don't think that's necessarily true. I believe that God can break a person and humble a person and reform a person what else are we doing here, if not for that? Now, again, I don't have a ton of time with you this morning, so I just want to, want to draw upon three points, and then we'll close up. But these are important, and some of them may be a little touchy for some of us, but that's okay. It's all right. Clearly, this is an emotional chapter, and an intimate chapter between God and one of His people, so there's nothing wrong with being just a little put on edge to think about some things. First thing I want to draw your attention to here, and it really doesn't take much work for me to do it, is the childishness of Jonah. The childishness of Jonah. You see it in verse 1. Um, you see it in verse 5. The pettiness of going off into the city to see what would happen as if his pouting was going to turn, change something and God was going to rain fire down after all. You see it in uh, verse 9 where he's petty about the plant, just the total breakdown, the total backwards uh, regression of Jonah's spiritual faith and maturity to infantile stages. Uh, if you will, just turn in your Bible, keep your finger here, but turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, I'm not going to teach all the way through Ephesians chapter 4, but I do want to draw your attention to this idea of spiritual Christian maturity. Because this is not unique to Jonah. It's not unique to the Old Testament. This is a major concern for our church. 
it's a major concern for every church and for every person. Now, because we have taught through Ephesians 4 on a number of occasions, you might remember that we have gone back and drawn upon the first half of Ephesians 4 over and over again. Because the first half of Ephesians 4 is the part that talks about how we're supposed to be grown up into a mature and complete man. The purpose being that we won't be tossed about to and fro by every wave of doctrine. And it's talking about spiritual maturity. Now let's just read the verses to review. We'll start in verse 11 for the sake of time. But listen, it's about spiritual maturity, but it's about a certain element of spiritual maturity. Now you got to listen. Don't Again, I don't have an icebreaker to keep you captivated here. You've got to pay attention here. You've got to care. Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. So church leaders and teachers are given to prepare Christians to do the work of ministry. You're supposed to be doing the work. It's not specifically my job. Christians are supposed to be doing the work as they are equipped to do so with training and teaching. All of those roles are training and teaching jobs, okay? Verse 13, why? Until we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Unity of faith, knowledge of the Son of God. These are things we learn, things we understand in our, in our minds, in our souls. You understand there's a teaching element here that leads to maturity as we work and labor. Then it says, to a perfect man. A better way of saying it might be to a complete man, to a finished product. That's the idea. Mature. You know, uh, I know it seems self-serving to say that I'm a complete man, but I did uh, put a line on the wall yesterday for the marking of the height of all of our children, right? You will be shocked to know that Allison grew. Uh, I don't know how, but in the last two years... So we must have measured incorrectly the last time because she grew two inches. And I thought that was certainly done. But all of the other kids made good progress. And what I have learned about myself is I am no longer growing on that wall. Those days, those days are done for me. Uh, to my, uh, you know, anyway, I wish that I was still growing. The idea here is that, you know, uh, my son is not a complete man. Trust me, he's not a complete man. In any way, shape, or form, but certainly not in his growth to maturity, right? But as Christians learn under the teaching of people who are appointed by God to do that, they grow in unity of the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God. They grow in those things, which will be a big shocker to people who think that they're good Christians because they heard something about the faith and said they believed in Jesus. Because you're supposed to grow in your knowledge of these things. It's a teaching thing. It's a learning thing. And you grow to be the perfect man, to the full measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ. Why? That we should no longer be children. Now, that's what we're talking about, the childishness of Jonah. But here it describes children as those who are tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, these are people who are immature and their immaturity shows up in the fact that they're gullible. They're spiritually gullible. They can be misled because they're not real solid on what they know of God and God's Word. That is one mark of spiritual immaturity, spiritual childishness. You know, they're not prepared for that. 
Now, you're familiar with that, I hope, because we've drawn upon this in the past. But just for me, I turn the page in, in, in the Bible and I get to verse 17 of Ephesians 4. In my Bible, there's a subheading and the subheading says, the new man. And we begin with, this I say therefore and testify in the Lord that we should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles. And then we go on in the ways that the Gentiles live their lives. Verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him. Verse 22, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. Because there's another element of spiritual immaturity that doesn't have anything to do with not knowing the right stuff. It has everything to do with not acting the right way. You know, in one sense, children are immature because they just don't know very much. They think they do, you know, but they don't. But in another sense, children are immature because even that which they know to be true, they lack the self-control and restraint to act consistently upon it. You know what I'm saying? Notice verse 25 of Ephesians 4. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This members of one another, members of one another. The church provides the structure for the maturity of our behavior as well. It's not just the maturity of our mental understanding. But in the church, in the body of Christ, which is what Paul is teaching of here in the letter to the church of Ephesus, our behavior too. The structure here is that we'll grow to spiritual maturity in our conduct, in our behavior too. Yes, in our teaching, in our doctrine, but also in the way that we act. Our childishness in the way that we act will improve, will be reformed. Verse 26, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath or give place to the devil. Let him who steals, steal no longer, but let him, let her, let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. See, it's community. It's not just don't steal anymore. The church is The community of the church is meant to reform our behavior to maturity. You get that? Now go to verse 1 of chapter 5. You get the conclusion of this. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore... Be imitators of God as dear children. That is spiritual maturity on the behavior side. And that's where Jonah is childish. Jonah does not have a doctrinal problem. His reverting to childish behavior is not because he doesn't know the truth and he's been led astray by some wrong doctrine. No, he knows the truth. He knows all kinds of things about God. It says, I know that you are gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abundant in loving kindness, one who really... All that stuff is true. He doesn't have a knowledge problem. He's got a behavior problem. He is reverting to childish, immature, carnal, worldly unsanctified behavior, and it's wrong. You know, there are some phrases that we use to describe childishness in the world around us today, and maybe you're familiar with them, maybe you aren't. I wrote down four of them here. One is, he, he, the, the, that kind of person is a person who, who, you know, who takes his ball and goes home. Have you ever heard that phrase before? That phrase, it comes from, you know, a kid who's at a playground, right? And he brings his ball down to the courts, and they're all playing basketball, having a good time. And you know what happens? He doesn't get his way. Maybe he called a foul and nobody agrees and they say, no, it's not a foul, check the ball up. Or maybe he doesn't get on the team, whatever it is, or he loses a game one too many times and he gets mad and he storms off, he says, well, it's my ball and he takes his ball and he goes home. I'm done. It's 
childishness, right? Grown men don't behave that way. I mean, unless you watch the NBA, sometimes they behave that way. Grown men should not behave that way. But that's childishness. I don't get my way, so I'm, I'm done. You know what? You see that in the church. You do. Go up to somebody who's done that and ask him this simple question. Now, is it right for you to feel this way? And they're not going to be real happy with you. Which is what God does. You know? Because all they're concerned about is that I didn't get my way and they wronged me here and da 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 Just ask, well, you know, the Bible says this, 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 and this, and this. So is it right for you to feel this way? They don't want to talk about that. They've already, they're just being a big baby. Here's another phrase. They're just going to sit on the sideline and pout. Sit in the corner and pout. Darlene smiled. You must have seen some powders in your day, right? You know? Somebody made me mad. Somebody bothered me. Somebody said something I didn't want to hear. I'm just going to go. <clears throat> Allison told me the other day she, she coaches the fifth and sixth grade girls basketball. She said she got on a girl for yelling at a teammate. She went and looked at another drill. She came back to that basket where that girl was supposed to be playing. The girl was gone. <laughs> what happened? It's like the rapture of the basketball team. She just get out of there. Where's so-and-so? She's in the locker room. Going to the locker room. I'm not coming out. I'm not coming out. That's kid stuff, right? It's childish. Somebody did something to bother me. That stuff happens in the church too. Oh, I was a big part of that ministry. I was really working hard. I gave all my time. Yeah, what happened? Well, somebody, blah, 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 fill in the blank, bothered, did something that bothered me. And I just said, well, I'm not going to do it anymore. I just. I guess the church is not doing what it's supposed to be doing in your life, huh? You have withdrawn yourself from the church because you don't want to be spiritually mature and learn to get along with others. You're just going to get along with others by not being a part of others. Sit on the sideline and pout. There, You know, the, the kids go and, and, and you ever hear kids grumble and complain and murmur about things all the time? That's childish. That's not what grown men and women should do when someone bothers them. They should go and work out their problems face to face. But you know, kids don't do that. Fortunately, a lot of adults don't do that. They go tell everybody else about what somebody did to them or what somebody said about them or what they don't like instead of just owning up to it and going and having an honest conversation privately with the one person or the two people that have bothered them and working it out and dying to themselves, but just childish. And then the last one I wrote down was, I'm only going to try hard when I feel like it. <laughs> Yeah, I won't tell you who we got a kid on the, on a basketball team this year and uh, never saw the kid run hard. Not once. Not in a practice. Always the last. Never ran hard. You know, just didn't matter what you seemed to say, never ran hard. Until one game, he got in the game. He didn't play very much because he didn't run hard. <laughs> he got into a game and he got the ball and it was a fast break situation and there was no one in front of him. And wouldn't you know that kid could run faster than I'd ever seen him run in his life? I mean, he is dead sprinting as fast and dribbling a ball, too. You're supposed to be slower when you do that. He went faster with the ball in that one little 40-foot 40, 40 stretch than I'd ever seen him run in his life. And everybody on the bench, not just the coach, everybody on the bench, like, wow, because he ran hard, because he felt like it. <laughs> and all the other time, he didn't run hard at all. And, you know, there, there are Christians who live that way. Oh, I'm going to work really hard for the Lord when I feel like it, you know? That's just childishness. You don't want to work with people like that, do you? I don't think so. 
You go, you go to work, you got a long day ahead of you, a bunch of stuff you got to get done, and you say, hey, man, you know, this is, you're going to take care of this today, right? And they're like, yeah, I might get to some of it. You're like, Ugh! It's childishness. And that's what Jonah was doing. And let me tell you, that ought not be how we live our lives. That ought not be how Christians behave. If it is, you need to be told. You're acting like a baby, and you need to stop. That's what God tells Jonah here. It's not right for you to feel this way. It's not right. It's hypocritical. It, it's losing sight of the big picture, and you need to knock it off. And, and you know, you ought to be able to hear that, and maybe it'll save you from getting your head burnt out in the middle of the desert somewhere while God teaches that lesson. Stop being a baby and do what you're supposed to do, okay? Um, second thing, and I'll make these last two fast because Steve's probably going to cover it when he leads in the Lord's Supper, but... I told you this book is not predominantly about Jonah. Who's it about? It's about God. Thank you. One person list. Thank you, Darlene. I appreciate that. See, if you all sat on the front row, you would all have the right answers. No, I'm kidding. Um, this shows us the faithfulness of God. You see God in the prodigal son, right? Jonah is God's son. He is God's saint. He is God's child. He is God's man. God is his father. God is taking ownership for Jonah here. And he doesn't let him get away with his trip to Tarshish. And he doesn't let him get away with his pouting in the middle of the desert. You see the faithfulness of God when it comes to Jonah's soul. It in the car, a huge blessing that God is faithful to stubborn people. If, you know, I told my kids this last night in the car on the way home from a basketball game. I, you know, I was reading and I was overcome and I just, I, I told the kids, I said, now this isn't, this isn't from a book, this is from your dad. I said, if it were possible for a Christian to part ways with the Spirit of God and lose their salvation, there would be no Christians. Because every Christian faces a myriad of times in their life when they are just sick of being under the conviction of what God wants them to do. They're sick of being under the teaching of God's word. They're sick of feeling these things and life would just be easier doing something else. If, if we could simply run from the presence of the Lord and get away with it, there would be no Christian people. No one is perfectly right in their thoughts and feelings towards their relationship with God. But God is faithful, friends. He is faithful. He does the work of justification. Ephesians 1.14 says that we possess the Holy Spirit of God as the guarantee, the seal of our inheritance forever. And yes, we are at work in the good works that we do on the other side of our salvation, but God is faithful in saving us and in keeping us. Praise the Lord. And the third thing we see is the compassion of God. Here in the book of Jonah, we see compassion for Nineveh. And specifically, little children in Nineveh. It says there are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. They're about ready to be caught up in the judgment of their parents and former generations who are murderers and violent people. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh when there's 120,000 souls who don't know their right hand? I don't think he's counting just the babies who are outside the womb. I think he's counting every living creation in Nineveh who doesn't have the mental development to understand the right from the left, let alone good and evil. You see the compassion of God in Nineveh. You see the same compassion in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Compassion. 
You see it with Noah and his family. You see it at the cross with a thief. In the dying breaths of our Savior who turned to just one man and extended him an invitation into eternal life. And I saw it in 1988 in Bolivar, Missouri, in my mom and dad's living room. The compassion of God. Justin read about it this morning in John 3. And we're going to remember it now. The love of God bore his enemies. That even though we were sinners, he did not destroy, he allowed him to rise, but he sent his son to save us. He allowed him to rise from the grave, victorious over sin and death, to send his disciples whom he had trained out in the world to bleed and die, to spread a gospel message that we have received, that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jonah is a picture of that, but this is the fulfillment of that. What happened in Nineveh is the precursor to a Jewish man going and offering salvation to Gentiles. What we see here is the fulfillment of a Jewish Messiah who gave his life to save Gentiles. You and me. People in the book of Hosea who are called not my people have been made my people. That's the work of Jesus. And that's the compassion of God. So let's pray. And let's turn our attention to these things. Oh Father. Help us to never put our hope and confidence in the presentation of a man. But move us to conviction at the teaching of your word. There is only one man who ought to be glorified and exalted for what he has done. And that is your son Jesus, the perfect man who we remember now. We thank you for what you've done to save us, to teach us, and to bring us to whatever part of spiritual maturity we're at right now. Father, I pray that you'll be faithful for us to continue to grow. Let no man or woman here think that they have arrived where they should be spiritually. I am not, and I know it. I want to be better. Father, make us useful for your kingdom, the kingdom which you bought with your blood. Thank you for that sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.